A share is a unit of exchange representing a sliver of a corporation that publicly trades on a particular stock market. Each stock is a stand-in for usually something like one one millionth or less of the company in question. There are about 4.3 billion shares of the Coca-Cola Corporation on the market, for instance. So if you bought a single share of ticker symbol KO, which is Coca-Cola's symbol on the New York Stock Exchange, you would own one four billion two hundred ninety-five millionth or so of the Coca-Cola company, which as of the day I'm recording this would cost you around $46. Shares of companies can also be bought and sold in private, on markets or between individuals or companies, but these public markets introduced in semi-modern form in the 17th and 18th centuries, served to close the gap between those who had corporate shares to sell and those who wished to buy such shares. In economics, this is what's sometimes called an efficiency, by making it more likely that people who want shares can get them and people who have shares can sell them. You also, theoretically at least, make it more likely that those shares will be sold for a price the seller can stomach and the buyer is willing to pay, a point of pricing equilibrium that is considered to be ideal, so that everyone gets what they want, no one gets ripped off, and the market as a whole can identify something approximating true value measures for the companies with stocks that are thus bought and sold. Complicating common understanding of the stock market, though, and I would argue, understandably so, is the question of where these values come from in the first place. Sure, buyers are willing to pay X amount for a share of Coca-Cola, but why? How do they come to that figure, and why would they want to pay it to own what seems to be an incredibly piddly amount of a major corporation? These are questions with many answers, but one superficial explanation might be that stocks have become value vaults, means of exchange that, like currency, gold, and artwork, are sometimes used in lieu of money as a method of exchange, but also quite often as a means of increasing one's wealth through investment in objects that investors think may increase in value over time. Currencies can be used to transmit value from person to person. I might pay you $20 for a meal that you prepare and serve to me, for instance, but currencies can also be used to earn more money. You could spend your dollars to buy a quantity of British pounds, hoping that, over time, those pounds will increase in value relative to U.S. dollars, at which point you could exchange them back, ending up with more dollars than you started out with. Gold works in a similar way, with an ounce of gold holding a certain value relative to money on markets where people exchange minerals for currency. And if you buy five ounces of gold with your dollars, it may be that at some point you're able to sell that gold to someone else for more dollars than you originally paid for it. Stocks and other securities work in a similar fashion at times. Some stocks pay what are called dividends, which are regular or semi-regular payouts to everyone holding stock in the company, based on the amount of stock they hold. Coca-Cola, for instance, pays dividends to owners of their stock, which means in practice that for each Coca-Cola share you possessed in 2019, 
the company would have paid you 40 cents each quarter, so every three months. That's not a lot of money if you have only a share or two, but it's money you did nothing to earn. It's them paying you a fraction of the profits they made, basically. And if you own a bunch of their stock, it can add up over time. If you had 1,000 shares of Coca-Cola in 2019, you would have earned about $1,600 in dividends alone that year. And that is something that, for some companies at least, happens on a fairly regular basis, and is money that you did nothing to receive other than owning the right stocks. In some countries, too, including the United States, the tax rates on some types of dividends are substantially lower than the tax rates on other types of income, like income that you earn from working a job. So stocks that provide them become even more appealing as investment vehicles due to that favorable tax situation. Beyond dividend income, though, stocks can also function a bit like gold in that a share of a particular company changes in value as measured in currency over time. And that means you could buy a share at one price and then sell it later at another price at a profit, potentially, though also potentially at a loss. The question of why these stocks fluctuate in value as they do, though, especially in the case of stocks that don't pay out dividends, is a little trickier to explain. After all, it makes sense that you might want to pay a set amount for a share up front to earn money from that share, even if just a little bit of money, on a regular basis, potentially for the rest of your life. That's the model to which big-time investors like Berkshire Hathaway founder Warren Buffett subscribe, and it's obvious how such a financial object is valuable. It earns you passive income. But what's valuable about a stock that pays you nothing? This is similar to asking what's valuable about a lump of gold, which also doesn't tend to pay dividends. Gold unto itself has some valuable properties, but that is not typically why it's worth what it's worth on financial markets. Gold is worth money because people are willing to pay for it, and people are generally willing to pay for it because other people are also willing to pay for it. This circular logic is fundamental to modern economic systems, and it's part of why pieces of paper are exchanged instead of manual labor or other types of more practical, inherently valuable physical goods. We all agree to pretend that these things are representative of other things, a vague sense of value that's passed around from person to person and entity to entity, because we all agree to those terms. And because we all agree to those terms, it becomes our reality. Because we treat these shares as value containers that are worth a certain amount of currency, or bare minimum a certain percentage of a particular company, and because those pieces of paper, those shares, are convertible into other types of value, we're able to turn around and say, okay, Coca-Cola has this many shares of stock on the market. Each share is being bought and sold at this price on average today. Thus, Coca-Cola has a total valuation of the number of shares available times the current going market price. Again, that's part of why these stock markets are considered to be useful. They help us slap a price tag on the holistic holdings of a corporation, at least in terms of how much that corporation is seen as being worth by people who pay attention to these sorts of things for a living. Now, that price is influenced by all kinds of variables from the brand the people running the company have built how much customers recognize the brand, think highly of their products, consider them to be good actors in the global or local marketplace, and so on. But it's also influenced by investor perception of how they're managing money and other assets, the amount of non-money value that they've built up in their employees and their infrastructure, 
what kind of competition they face, and how they seem to be planning for the future. That last point is actually really important to understanding how these stock prices come to be. The prices are set by experts when a company initially starts trading on a particular market, but over time, those prices change and are set essentially by what investors think they should be. And in most cases, savvy investors are not paying what they think a share of the company, a fractional portion of the company's overall value, is worth today. They're paying for what they think the company will be worth in the future. And the amount of time into the future that they're forecasting can change based on the circumstances under which they're doing that forecasting. Sometimes investors are very forward-facing, looking at deals today based on the price they predict that stock will hold a decade or two in the future. In other cases, though, that timeline shrinks, and they're basing the price on company attributes as they may exist in just a few months in the future. What I'd like to talk about today are some new variables that seem to be influencing stock pricing, and what this might mean for the future of stock trading, investment, and speculation. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from Bloomberg, and it's entitled Hertz Rally Powers Plan to Sell Potentially Worthless Stock. This piece succinctly describes a strange moment within a larger, strange chain of events that themselves are part of a larger, still strange trend in the world of stocks and investment, which have been, to some, heartening and fun, and to others, worrying and awkwardly timed. What this Bloomberg story describes, though, is an unusual situation that's coming to define that aforementioned strange moment. Let's start in on all of this strangeness, though, by talking about rental cars. Hertz is the second largest rental car company in the United States in terms of sales and in terms of assets, its number of locations, the size of its vehicle fleet, things like that. It operates in about 150 countries and also owns dollar rent-a-car and thrifty car rental as subsidiary companies. In 2018, Hertz ranked 335th on the Forbes Fortune 500 list of largest U.S. corporations by revenue, and in 2019, the company employed about 38,000 people, had revenues of just under $10 billion, and on-hand assets of around $24.6 billion. On May 22, 2020, Hertz declared bankruptcy. The company, by most indications, had been doing quite well, but part of its growth, and it was growing, its revenue increasing by about 6% in January and February of 2020, part of that growth was predicated on debt, about $17 billion worth of debt, which, importantly, isn't unusual. Most companies use debt to expand, even if they have all the cash they need for that expansion on hand already, because paying for that expansion in debt instead allows them to grow faster while still maintaining economic flexibility. $17 billion of debt is a lot of debt, but remember they had nearly $10 billion in revenue coming in each year, and nearly $25 billion in on-hand assets. So it wasn't a crazy amount to owe, all things considered, compared to other companies. And that would likely have remained the case. Their debt not being a true hazard 
if the COVID-19 pandemic hadn't led to worldwide shutdowns, including in their home turf of the United States. Both business and pleasure-related travel more or less disappeared in just a few weeks, and that disappearance lasted for months. These industries are still barely their versions of themselves as of the day I'm recording this, despite some openings and small resurgences in some aspects of the local and global travel industries. As a result, the steady inflow of revenue that they used to pay down debts all but disappeared, and the company failed to make a payment on the lease for some of its fleet of about 667,000 cars, SUVs, and other vehicles. The leadership of the company tried to put together a financial deal that would allow them to pay their debt holders without destroying the company, but they weren't able to make the numbers fit, and they declared bankruptcy to gain legal protections during their restructuring process, which was followed almost immediately by the collapse of the company's stock price from around $20 per share to just under $3 per share, alongside the firing or furloughing of about 20,000 employees over half the company's workforce, none of which has looked very good for the company. And these recent pandemic-related wounds have combined with other fairly recent issues with taxes and the company's leadership to drop the perceived valuation of their stock even further, reaching a low of 56 cents a share on May 26th, a few days after they declared bankruptcy. And again, this was a company that until just recently had been trading at about $20 a share, and back in the halcyon days of 2014, they were trading at around $110 per share. 56 cents, though, is arguably a little bit high for a company that looks likely to either be sold for scraps to a competitor or to just disappear entirely. Almost always what happens in these sorts of circumstances is that the stocks held by investors lose most or all of their value. So those who hold the stocks are left holding the bag, and their investments fizzle away as the value of the company fizzles away. The company has to pay a bunch of other entities and debts first, before anything ever makes its way to stock investors. So the chances that a successful bankruptcy restructuring will lead to any money for stockholders approaches zero in almost every case. In this case, though, outside forces conspired to take the story in a very different direction. To understand those forces, let's talk for a moment about how one purchases stocks and how that's changed in recent years for many people. Traditionally, if you wanted to buy a share in a company, like Coca-Cola, you make a call to your stockbroker, a person who professionally buys stocks on other people's behalf, and you pay them some kind of fee as part of them having done that service for you. Some of the cheaper options might cost you $5 each time you make a purchase or sale. This is how such transactions worked pretty much always until 2015, when a company called Robinhood launched an app that allowed users to make commission-free trades through that app. Meaning, instead of calling up your broker and being charged $5 for the trade they make on your behalf, a trade that costs them fractions of a cent to actually make, and rather than being required as part of doing business with them to keep somewhere between $500 and $5,000 minimum in your account with them, you could transfer a few bucks into this app from your bank account and start investing those few bucks in stocks free of charge almost immediately. The ease of use and freedom from traditional monetary constraints just to participate in the market 
opened the world of stocks and other securities up to new demographics, especially younger people, and it led to copycat moves from other entities, including traditional banks and stock brokerages, who saw the writing on the wall and realized they would probably need their own free option if they wanted to tap into that burgeoning, increasingly enthusiastic, younger audience. Importantly, and this isn't fundamental to understanding the bigger focus of this episode, so I won't get too deep into it, but it's important to recognize that Robinhood and similar entities are able to make these trades on users' behalf because they make money in other ways. They earn interest on the money that users put into their accounts on the apps, which those users would earn themselves if they kept the money in the bank instead, and in some cases, they've also made money by messing with what's called order flow. Essentially, in the milliseconds between receiving an order and placing the order on the market, on their user's behalf, they send info about what their users are about to buy to other stock-related entities, and those entities pay for that info, which in practice sometimes means bigger stock brokerages that paid to get this split-second informational advantage can then snap up those shares from the market and sell them at a small profit to the people buying these shares through these free stock buying apps. Using Robinhood and similar services, then, is free, but it can also lead to higher prices on stocks that you choose to buy through them, a loss of interest on the money that you transfer to the app, and other slow, steady losses of that kind, none of which may matter to many of us, but it's worth knowing what pays for what, I think, especially when it seems like a service offering is a little too good to be true. They have to keep the lights on somehow, and in some cases, the methods used wouldn't be methods that you would agree with if you understood how it all fit together, while in other cases it wouldn't matter to you at all. That said, Robinhood and their copycats changed how some aspects of the stock market and similar securities exchanges operated, because folks could now make as many trades as they wanted without having to pay for every trade which made new trading and investing strategies feasible. It also brought new money and new sorts of people into the market. In the last few years, then, we've seen a shift in some facets of the stock market toward certain types of stocks that traditionally, pre-2015, wouldn't have necessarily gotten as much attention and wouldn't have seen as much activity and that's based both on the possibilities enabled by free trades, but also the new people who were making trades as a result of that model, and the newfangled, friendly, intuitive apps that often went with them. The electric car company, Tesla, is considered by many analysts to be one such company that was getting more attention as a consequence of these new variables in how people conducted their trades. Tesla is run by an ideologically driven charismatic leader, Elon Musk, who is constantly in the news for both negative and positive things that he's done or said, and he's attracted both cult-like acolytes and rabid haters around his brand, which paints him as a Tony Stark-like genius technologist who sends rockets into space, wants to save the world with gorgeous electric vehicles, and who is semi-regularly building giant drills and illegally selling flamethrowers on the open market. He's a colorful character, and the companies that he started and that he runs get a lot of attention from lovers and haters as a consequence of all of that. Adoration, hate, and publicity. If you're someone who is financially illiterate or semi-literate, then who knows little or nothing about the stock market, about valuing a company, about all the traditional aspects of stock investment and trading, 
and if you get most of your insights about where to invest from Twitter accounts, blogs, and YouTube videos, it makes sense that you might decide you want to invest in what you know and what you've heard about and what you're enthusiastic or anti-enthusiastic about. And if you're one of the many people who loves or hates Elon Musk, or if you follow the account of someone who does, then you might decide to invest in, or to short, to essentially bet against, one of his companies. The dramatic swings seen in the stock prices of Tesla, Musk's electric car company in particular, are thought to reflect this trend in less market-literate people deciding to essentially vote with their money, using these investments to declare their love or hate of particular people, particular ideologies, and even politics evoked by the brands of everything from electric car companies to regional fried chicken chains. So we have a newish, not-quite-understood emerging trend in the stock market, and that trend seems to be sloshing money in weird directions, stock prices no longer necessarily tied to actual financial information, real assets or accounting numbers, but instead seemingly based on what's been in the everyday person's newsfeed recently, and thus, often, how much positive or negative attention the CEO of said company is receiving in the non-financial press. Then, in the midst of that new developing norm within this space, the COVID-19 pandemic arrived. It's at this point that we get a little bit theoretical, as this is an even more nascent trend, that a very few savvy stock market analysts have noted and been writing about. But as of the day I'm recording this, at least, it's still only about three months old, so it could turn out to be a flash-in-the-pan sort of thing. But smart people who I trust on these sorts of things have been pointing at this trend from different angles for weeks now, and Bloomberg's Matt Levine recently dubbed the overall concept the boredom market hypothesis. The boredom market hypothesis says, basically, a lot of people have been spending more time at home, their normal lives derailed, and they're a bit bored as a result of that. Many of them have more excess money on hand than usual because they can't spend it at restaurants or on drinks or on other normal everyday life-related entertainment-related goods, so they're maybe opening up Robinhood accounts and learning the basics of stock trading or investing while they putter around the house. What's more, sports and other entertainments of that flavor are not being produced because of the pandemic, and thus the desire for entertainment, and perhaps an even more specific desire for team and betting-related entertainment, the thrill of having a side to cheer for and a team to cheer against, is deeply unfulfilled right now. As these people learn more about the stock market, though, they realize that, hey, I can buy a stock and cheer for that. I can cheer against competing stocks. I can go online and immerse myself in forums and blog posts and podcasts about this topic. And in its totality, this whole investing and trading thing begins to feel a bit like sports. And it becomes more than a little bit entertaining. And it has real stakes. It's like legal gambling. And the result of a bunch of people behaving in roughly this way is that alongside the wave of new, relatively ignorant money that's now in the market because of these free stock apps, we also have a bunch of people who are buying and selling stocks based on metrics that are different from those typically utilized by well-informed, well-seasoned stock investors. 
Those stock experts tend to look at long-term trajectories and endless spreadsheets and mathematical models that tell them which companies are worth what and when they will be worth what. Folks who treat stocks like sports teams, on the other hand, are more likely to buy based on superficial information, gut feeling, and emotional resonance. How much they like or dislike a particular brand, CEO, or something else along those lines. They're also more likely to buy stocks that they consider to be entertaining or interesting. This is why it's been posited. We've seen a lot of weird fluctuations in the pricing of cool-seeming, flashy companies like Tesla, alongside other perturbations that have made the stock market less predictable, less rational by traditional standards, and a lot more dynamic, with wilder ups and downs and with fewer fluctuation warnings that are visible to traditional traders. This trend, whether it's truly a new trend or just a flash in the pan, is being both utilized and amplified by a slew of newcomer amateur investors who have decided to publicize their approaches and tools that they've been using to invest in this newly dynamic, sloshy, unpredictable market. A guy named Dave Portnoy, for instance, who runs a popular blog called Barstool Sports, had only ever bought one stock in his life before the pandemic. But when things closed down, he decided to dive into the world of day trading, which means buying and selling stocks rapidly in an attempt to make a slim profit on each of many trades each day, which then ideally add up to a lot of profit if you do enough of them. And he did so to keep himself entertained while there were no new sports to watch. In the months since he got started, Portnoy's mantra, stocks only go up, has become a bit of a rallying call for some facets of the newly stock trading internet. The risk associated with the types of plays being made by him and other people who are proudly playing the stock market like it's a game has seemed to resonate with folks who are already frequenting forums like the Wall Street Bets subreddit, which has been colorfully described as being like a multiplayer version of the TV show Jackass, but for the stock market. Essentially, random people from around the world turn to this and similar forums to brag, usually in the form of screenshot evidence, about crazy plays that they make on the market, whether that means investing in some obviously floundering or scammy penny stock, or showing how much money they loaded into a popular, flashy company, before then waiting for it to either go sky-high or to crash completely. That waiting, that bet, that gambling, is the game. The comparison to the show Jackass is somewhat apt, I think, as that show centered on a group of friends pranking each other, kicking each other in the crotch, and laughing at their own and other people's pain, discomfort, and brazenness. And that's more or less what folks playing the market in this way are doing, but with finances instead of body parts. Knowing that, you can maybe see how this all ties together. When Hertz declared bankruptcy, the smart money fled to higher ground, and the stock collapsed to a fraction of a dollar a share. The stock market thrill-seekers, though, saw in this bankruptcy a massive opportunity. Yes, the logic went. This stock may be valueless. It may be that I will pay 56 cents a share and lose all of that money. But it's only 56 cents a share. And that means if it increases even a little bit, I could maybe make a ton of money. And I could make a ton of money off of a traditional, well-known brand 
And maybe that brand only dropped in value due to circumstance. Who knows? What's more, I could invest $1,000 and buy nearly 2,000 shares of an until recently Fortune 500 company. That is nuts, and that will look awesome when I post the screenshot evidence of my purchase on Wall Street Bets. This brings us back around to that original Bloomberg piece, which again was entitled Hertz Rally Power's Plan to Sell Potentially Worthless Stock, and which was preceded only days before by another piece entitled Hundreds of Thousands of Tiny Buyers Swarm to Insolvency Stocks. In June of 2020, well after that declared bankruptcy, 96,000 people using the Robinhood app bought shares of Hertz stock. About 10,000 new investors also used Robinhood to buy shares of Whiting Petroleum Corporation, which recently filed for bankruptcy, and Chesapeake Energy, which as of the day I'm recording this is reportedly about to file for bankruptcy. Seasoned investors are calling such plays trying to catch a falling knife, and it follows the same general logic as buying penny stocks in general. I don't have any particular reason to believe this stock will ever go up in any substantial way, but if it does... I will have essentially won the lottery. The logic underpinning these purchases, then, is the logic of gambling and entertainment, not the logic followed by most institutional investors. The truly bizarre outcome of this confluence of circumstances, in the case of Hertz, is that the company is now issuing new shares of stock, stock that they are saying outright may be worthless, because one imagines them gesturing around broadly to everything that's happening in the world and to their company, and just assuming that people will understand this stock offering is not for informed, non-gambling investors or traders. These stocks, like all of their stocks, will probably be valueless, because the company may be entirely insolvent. They may not be able to come back and then do business, and they may be sold for parts to a competitor. All of that stock losing value, regardless, all of the money they make from selling themselves off, given to their other debt holders who have priority. But they are required by the conditions of bankruptcy protection to do what they can to get as much money for those debt holders as possible to close the gap between what they owe and what they can pay. So if the public inexplicably is asking them for more potentially valueless stock shares on the market, and is willing to pay for those potentially valueless shares, who are they to tell them no? They actually kind of have to make them available if they can. Now, the most likely scenario is that the money paid for those shares will simply be handed to the companies that they owe for the cars, for their rent, and so on. The stockholders getting nothing in this transaction, except for the bragworthy story of having been involved in a major gamble that didn't pay off. And the logic of the people running Hertz here seems to be, if they're willing to pay for that story, for that entertainment, maybe that's fine. Maybe that's okay. Whether they would be allowed to sell these new shares, though, was actually an open question, because it's not something that typically happens. But a bankruptcy judge approved the sale of new shares, agreeing that if there's demand for it, why not? In June 2020, the stock jumped from less than a dollar to over $5 a share. On the strength it's suspected of this gambling mentality and the rumble of news and forum activity that's been building around it, as of the day I'm recording this, it's dropped back down to just under $2, so we'll see how much Hertz actually makes from this sale. 
Of course, most of the financial world is looking at this, and similar scenarios playing out elsewhere, as something like the wave of cryptocurrency speculation bubbles that have inflated and then popped, mostly with scandal, sometimes with just underperformance or a slow fizzle, over the past handful of years. The only people really making money off of it being the people who promote these inflationary situations before walking away with as much money as possible. This sort of speculation is rife with pump-and-dump elements, where folks with an audience and, one would assume, sociopathic tendencies buy up a bunch of worthless but cheap stock, or worthless but cheap crypto coins, bang the drum about how much money can be made by folks willing to invest, which in turn convinces a bunch of random people on the internet to buy in to that penny stock or crypto coin, inflating the price. And at some point during that temporary surge in market value, the charismatic initiator of that bubble sells their shares at that inflated price to the people they convinced it might be worth something, leaving all of the holders of that stock with valueless assets, which they're unable to sell or unable to sell for more than they initially paid. The term greater fool in the world of these sorts of assets refers to the person you require if you're going to make money in this way. You need someone who is a greater fool than yourself to take that asset off your hand so that you aren't left holding it, and ideally they will buy it from you at a greater price than you initially paid for it. It's possible, then, that some of the people behind the popularity of this Hertz stock enthusiasm bought up a bunch of shares at around 56 cents, then fluffed up that popularity, selling those shares to their followers at $5 a piece, leaving them holding the bag leaving them as the greater fools, and leaving them to cope with having bought what ends up being valueless assets. The big difference between these schemes and what seems to be happening right now, though, in some cases at least, is that the real win for some of the people involved seems to be either accumulating more fans for their thrill-seeking, risk-taking financial hijinks for their YouTube channel or whatnot, or for pure entertainment purposes, the same sort of thrill you might get from betting everything on Red 28 at the roulette table in Vegas. You're not really expecting to win, but it's fun to think that you could, that there's a small sliver of a chance that you might, and it's entertaining to watch that wheel spin while that chance is in the air. The spinning itself, the potential itself, experiencing that sense of trepidation and anticipation, that seems to be what a lot of people are paying for here. It'll be interesting to see what happens next. There is, after all, the chance, small as it is, that one of these big bet companies that is currently going under will, either because of the betting or just due to the natural flow of things, come out of their bankruptcies better than they went in, eventually at least, which could increase the prevalence and popularity of this swashbuckling approach to playing the market. And it could amplify the perceived legitimacy of the influencers who are building up these bubbles and taking these bets in front of their adoring audience for what seem to be primarily entertainment purposes, at least at this point. It's also possible, though, that professional sports will start back up, people will get back to work, and or some other more interesting asset class will emerge or re-emerge, like another exciting crypto coin of some kind, and that will pull this audience's attention back to the newest, shiniest, most interesting collection of happenings on the internet on that particular day, nudging the stock market back towards something approximating normal, 
though still importantly, a type of normal defined by a slow, steady change, instigated by those aforementioned newly available tools, and the flood of new people who have begun to invest and trade, and in some cases speculate, over the course of the past several years. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called The Light Brigade by Cameron Hurley. The Light Brigade is, on its face, an interesting piece of military science fiction, but like the book Starship Troopers, the book, not the movie, mind you, there's actually some fairly sophisticated satire and criticism mixed in with the overall story. The story itself being worth the read, the interwoven messages and how they're presented making it even more interesting and entertaining. The basic concept is that in a future Earth scenario, there is a conflict between Earth and Mars, but because of the way society is organized with a bunch of essentially metanational corporations running things instead of countries, there is a very well-defined caste system within society, and the way that these wars are fought have changed in nature in such a way that it's very difficult for the people involved, the soldiers doing the fighting, to keep tabs on who is on their side, who is the enemy, to keep tabs on what's happening, why they are fighting different groups, for which reasons, is the rationale for these conflicts legitimate to begin with. On top of that, the main character is experiencing a bit of discordance in the way that they experience the war. They're having a bit of a chronology issue where they're experiencing things out of order because of the way that they travel between Earth and Mars, being turned into photons, essentially, and then reassembled on the other side. So the story itself is very entertaining, just as a military conflict story set in a very well-defined, unfortunately thinkable type of dystopian scenario. But the way that it addresses things like inequality and corporatocracy and the nature of armed conflict to begin with, and to a certain degree the nature of time and our understanding of reality, these concepts are all very well woven together. And the book is thus even more enjoyable than it would have been if it was just a flat piece of military sci-fi storytelling. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Light Brigade by Cameron Hurley. You can find out more about me and my work, including the books that I've written, at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find my other podcast, Brain Lenses, wherever you get your podcasts or at brainlenses.com, and you can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com. Feel free to reach out and say howdy on your social network of choice. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook, and at Colin is my name on Instagram and Twitter and such. Thank you so very much for listening. I am Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.